So our first reading is chapter 12, starting at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to them. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And then our next reading is chapter 13, um, starting at verse 18. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Thank you, Anna, for reading. Um, are, you, are you getting a handle on the structure of John's Gospel? We've, been, uh, we've not been in it for a while in the evening, so um, maybe just uh, remember where we are. Um, John's Gospel kind of has two main halves, um, what's sometimes called the Book of the Signs, um, seven signs that Jesus performs uh, through the early part of the book, um, where he... Um, well, he makes himself known. He reveals um, uh, himself through these signs that point to his identity. Um, and then the, the second half of the book takes us to the cross. Uh, it's all about the passion, uh, all about the move um, to, uh, to his crucifixion and then resurrection. Um, those are the two parts. Um, th- there is, though, in a sense, there's a bit of a hiatus in the middle. Um, chapters um, 13, 14, uh, 15, and 16, um, kind of almost like a little pause in the dramatic developments uh, that are going on. The narrative pauses as uh, Jesus retreats to an upper room uh, with his disciples, and they share together a Passover meal. Then Jesus begins to teach them about everything that's going on, um, and then he prays for them um, and for uh, the church that's going to come into being. Um, so it's quite an extended period of, of very rich material um, that we are working our way through, both evening and morning um, at the moment. Um, so lots here, um, even though it's a short passage, uh, this final ch- chunk of chapter 13, um, lots here. Um, and the first thing I want to think about with you is the issue of glory, um, the glory um, of the Son of Man. When I said I was going to click through these, I remember now. Um, there we go, the glory of the Son of Man. Concentrate. Uh, let me read the first couple of verses again. Um, when he was gone, uh, that is Judas on his mission of betrayal. Uh, when he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. You can't miss the emphasis on glory, can you? Um, glory, glorified, glorified, glorify, glorify. We've got a lot of glory tucked in there. But are we terribly clear what we mean when we're thinking about glory? Um, sort of, we do use the word, don't we? Um, uh, we use it quite a lot in relation to sport, I've noticed. Um, you know, Spurs win a glorious victory in the semi-final over Ajax on Tuesday evening. Um, that's the sort of thing we talk about. Um, or, how do you pronounce his name? Iliad Kipchoki? How do you pronounce it? I've, no, I've only ever seen it read. I mean, written. Second fastest marathon in the world, ever, in history, uh, run today in London um, by um, Iliad. Um, that's pretty glorious, isn't it? I mean, that, that's, the, that's the kind of language we speak, isn't it, when we're thinking about glory. Um, or maybe nature. Oh, what a glorious sunset. 
Um, something fantastic, something wonderful, something that takes our breath away, something that uh, is emotionally moving, we would often describe as glorious. But does that prepare us well for understanding what the Bible means uh, and what Jesus means here when he's talking about glory? Um, Glory in the Bible is associated with God. Um, His glory is an overflow, if you like, of his very nature. Um, You you get that all over the Old Testament. Um, Sorry, is that a bit too small? hope not. Um, When Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Um, And then this cloud often settles on the tabernacle or the temple. Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled in it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Um, and uh, we get the same idea about the glory of God filling um, the, the new heavens and the new earth. The city, in the book of Revelation, picturing uh, the dwelling place of God. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Uh, so we get, we get this idea of the glory being sort of the, the, the overflow of, the, of the, the revelation of the very character uh, of God um, himself. Um, and glory, therefore, is a big theme in John's gospel. Because John is trying to tell us that in Jesus, God is revealing himself. He makes that clear right in the prologue, doesn't he? Uh, where he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, is revealing the very glory of God because he is God in human form. Um, And John picks up a number of times in the early part of the Gospel how um, the things that Jesus is doing are revealing glory. The the first of those is in the very first miracle. You remember it? The the turning of water into wine um, in the wedding in Cana in Galilee. Uh, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Um, Then you get the same idea uh, when you move on to chapter 11. Um, And Jesus hears news that Lazarus is dead. Um, And uh, what Jesus says is, This illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Um, And then when he comes to the grave, uh, and when um, Martha, I don't remember which of the sisters it is, I think it's Martha, isn't it, who says there'll be a terrible odor. He's been dead for four days. Uh, Jesus replies by saying, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So that this miracle that he's performing, this raising of Lazarus to the dead, is somehow revealing the glory of God because it's revealing the person of Jesus and what he's capable of. Um, so glory is a big theme um, in John's Gospel. Um, but, but we also discover that glory, that there's more glory to come Um, The the reason I asked Anna to to read chapter 12 is because in chapter 12, amongst other places, um, we get get suggestions that there is more glory about to be revealed. 
Um, So in chapter 7, up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Still some more glorification to to, to be done. And then in chapter 12, at first his disciples didn't understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him. So somehow the the revelation, the, the, the unfolding of the glory of God still kind of lies, of Jesus, still kind of lies ahead. But it feels as if it's getting close. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Um, and then a little while later on in the upper room, Jesus will say, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may be glorified. Now, here's a thought. The turning of water into wine reveals the glory of God. The raising of Lazarus from the dead reveals the glory of God in Jesus. Walking on the water reveals his glory. Giving sight to blind people reveals his glory. And we're not done yet. The disciples are now being told there's more revealing of glory to be done. And you think, wow. I mean, if we've had all of that and there's still more to come, how good is this going to be? Which is, of course, the point at which we're taken completely by surprise. Because it's not as we expect. The glory that is still to be revealed is far from what we would anticipate. See, what does Jesus say? Uh, Back in chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Or, later on in chapter 12, my, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And we begin to see that this revealing of the glory of God is of a very different character to the one we expected. What is the place? What is the way? What is the the moment in which Jesus will be so wonderfully glorified? Well, it is when he will be betrayed and arrested, when he'll be whipped. Uh, with a whip that will take lumps out of his back. When he'll be stripped naked, laughed at. When he'll be nails banged into his hands and feet, pinned to a cross, hoisted up, where everyone can point at him and laugh at him, mock him. You could save others, you can't save yourself. That... John is telling us is the glory moment. That is the glorification of Christ. And it seems like madness, doesn't it? How could that be glorious? It looks like humiliation, doesn't it? Doesn't look like glory at all. In what sense is this terrible death this awful humiliation 
a glory moment. Well, remember what glory is. Glory is the overflowing of the revealing of the character of God. And then realize how the cross reveals God to us. Think of all the ways it does that. The cross reveals to us just how much God hates evil and sin. He's willing even to do this to be rid of it. The cross reveals to us that the the absolute justice of God, that he can't just turn a blind eye and say, oh, never mind, we'll just pass over all that sin business. No, 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 he's just. He has to punish sin. The cross reveals to us the astonishing love of God, that he is willing to bear the punishment in our place. And the cross reveals to us how justice and love can be brought together. The only way in which God can simultaneously love us and be a just God is by bearing the punishment himself on the cross. And it reveals to us that God is willing to do such a thing. See, see the cross is the place where we most richly, fundamentally, and to our astonishment, discover what kind of a God God is. This is what God does, and this is, reveals to us who God is. Without the cross, we'd never fathom the character of God. So it's not the glory we expect, but it does reveal the God that we would never have known any other way. So that's the glory of the Son of Man. Um, more briefly, uh, let's just touch secondly on the shame of the sons of Adam. I'm a bit, bit sad with that. I was trying to be clever. I don't think it's very clever. Um, the contrast uh, between, um, between what God does in Christ um, and the way that we so often behave. Um, see the way in which Peter reacts to all of this um, uh, um, all of this discussion, all of this anticipation of the cross. So you see it there in verse 33. Um, Jesus describes what's about to happen to him as a journey. Um, he says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, that's the Jewish leaders, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. But but then notice how Peter responds down there in verse 36. Initially, he asks for information. Well, where are you going? Uh, And Jesus kind of reinforces the same idea. Uh, Where I am going, you cannot follow now. But you will follow later. But that's not good enough for Peter. So verse 37, Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter has some sort of a sense that Jesus is heading into a a difficult place. The idea of threat and betrayal has been bubbling around now um, for some time. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'm brave. I'm not frightened. I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. You underestimate me. You've no idea how much I love you. I'm prepared to give up my very life for you. It's kind of impressive. It's bold. It's brave. But do you see the irony uh, of the place where Peter places himself? 
You see, here is Jesus trying to explain to Peter and to the rest of the disciples that Jesus has to go to the cross, that he has to die in their place, that it is necessary for him to die to save them. And you see what Peter's doing? Peter's saying, oh, no, 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 let me die for you. I'll lay down my life for you. As Jesus tries to get the disciples to understand their spiritual state, their spiritual need, Peter resists. And I think at this point, Peter stands for you and I. That's why I was trying to capture the sons of Adam, all of us. He stands for us because that's what we're like. Convinced we can sort ourselves out. Preferring to focus on our abilities rather than our spiritual need. And because of that, so often like Peter, heading for a catastrophic fall. Verse 38, Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. It is so important that you and I understand that that the Christian faith is about our spiritual poverty and Christ's spiritual gift to us. Christian faith involves my inability and the extraordinary work that Christ does in my place. Christian faith is about me failing and Christ providing a sin-covering sacrifice for me. If you and I won't accept that basic dynamic of, of our poverty and need and Christ's provision and care, we'll never get the Christian faith. If we drift in the direction of Peter's error here, no, no, I can do this. Let me do something for you, Jesus. Let's begin there. If we make that error, then we'll never get the Christian faith. And also, if we make that error, we will never be an effective part of the community that Jesus intends to build. Um, let me try and explain what I mean by that. Um, come to our third heading, uh, which is the distinctive of the community of faith. Y- you'll notice I've, I've jumped over the verses in the middle. Um, and I've kind of jumped over them because I think they're, I think they're kind of in the middle here because they're the climax. Um, I'm not sure I'm right, but it, but it feels as though everything is arranged around these central verses. There you have Jesus talking about glory, Uh, at one end of the passage and then you've got Peter heading for shame at the other end and then you've got Jesus talking about the journey he's going to go on um, and uh, more about the journey the other side and then smack bang in the middle um, is this great statement uh, from Jesus about what the Christian community should be like a new command I give you love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. It's a little bit odd, isn't it? Because you kind of think, it doesn't sound terribly new. It sounds 
kind of, you know, pretty standard. Love one another. I think we've seen some of that in the Old Testament. Old Testament's got ideas about loving God, loving your neighbor. It's all there. Didn't sound new at all, Jesus. What are you on about? And I think the answer is caught in that little phrase, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That, I think, is the new bit. Uh, And that provides both the motivating driver for this love as well as the character and shape of this love. And if we make the error that I've got there in point two, we will never form the community that Jesus is describing here um, as we come to this central idea. Because if we are not clear just how badly we need to be saved by Jesus, if we don't understand how desperate we are for the character of this spiritual salvation, then his love will not seem so big to us. And if our love doesn't seem so, if his love doesn't seem so big to us, then we will not be driven by the motivating factor nor will we have a shape for the character of this love that is big enough. Do do, do you see how that works? Let let me try and, um, at the risk of trivializing things horribly, let me me try and offer an example. Um, Suppose your summer holidays, I don't know, let's let's say you're going to uh, to Greece for your holidays. You're going to go and visit Tim and Nicky Sandal and have a nice cheap holiday with them uh, on on a Greek island. Um, And uh, there you are, splashing about in in the waves. Um, and then suddenly, um, uh, a, nice, uh, a nice brawny Greek man arrives at your side with a lilo, um, and he says, jump aboard. Um, and so you jump aboard the lilo, and then he paddles you back to shore. It's not very far. It's only sort of, you know, sort of 100 meters or so. Um, not far. Wouldn't have taken you long to swim it. Um, and it's quite nice, having a bit of company. Uh, on the journey, enjoying the sunshine and him pulling you in on your lilo. Very pleasant. No big deal. Just a nice bit of company. Now replay the story. And suppose that you can't swim. And suppose you're splashing around in the waves is because your head's going under. And now the Greek man appears at your side with a lilo and says jump aboard it's no longer a a sort of a a pleasant trip back to shore with a bit of company on the journey now this is your salvation and this man is your saviour see who is Jesus to you just a pleasant uh, companion for your journey through life someone who adds a bit of extra value to you? Or have you clearly and absolutely understood that you are in desperate spiritual need facing the righteous judgment of God and only Jesus and only through a death on the cross 
can you be spared from that? That's how he's loved you. That's what he's done for you. Do you see, if we get that, then when we read Jesus saying, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. We're both driven to that love because of the way that he's loved us. And we're called to a standard of love that just takes your breath away. Love one another. In that character of love, the, the, the style of love that is exhibited on the cross, If you and I don't get the cross, if, if, if Christchurch as a church doesn't get the cross, then it will be a church where mutual love is very thin, very lightweight, very inadequate. But in as much as we get the cross, we understand what it is that Jesus has done for us, then the character of the, of the, the love between us, that will be established will be rich and deep and beautiful. I want to say um, four things briefly as we close uh, to try and apply this. Uh, Four concluding thoughts, if you like, uh, about church. Um, First is choose your church carefully. Um, If you're choosing whether or not to be involved in this church. Choose carefully. So you're going off to university. Um, you're going to be involved in a church there. Choose carefully. At some point in the years, in the future, you're in a new place. Choose carefully. Because you and I should choose a church where the cross is central, where the cross is talked about, where the cross is the heartbeat of church life. Because it's, where the, it's the cross where Jesus is glorified and it's only as we understand the cross that we are drawn to be the community that Paul, that Jesus is calling us to be uh, here. So, so choose your church carefully. Uh, secondly, um, changing churches is huge. It's not a small thing to move from one church to another. It should never be something we do lightly. Because if church is about establishing that the character of love that is being described here, then it should be a terrible wrench to, to uproot those relationships. Sometimes there'll be reasons to do it. Uh, lots of dear friends... Uh, have moved uh, to get involved uh, in starting Hope Church Chesterton. Uh, And the tears that were shed uh, up at the front here a few weeks ago uh, was testimony to the love that they had experienced here, the love that they felt for us, the love that we felt for them, and how much of a wrench it was uh, for them to leave. So there will be times uh, when we choose uh, to move church. But it, it should be a big thing. We're a hyper-mobile kind of culture, aren't we? Um, we're moving around all over the place. 
Um, and I think we ought to say, do you know, there will come points in, uh, in the lives for some of you where the decision to put church before career, to take a job that is not quite as good as that job um, in London or in Nottingham, but you choose actually, do you know, I'd rather stay in Cambridge uh, so that the relationships that I developed here can go on developing a bit further, rather than spend my working life just zigzagging across the country, place to place, never really putting down any roots of any great depth, because I'm never there long enough, really, to develop the quality of community that Jesus is calling me to. Now, I know that's, I don't want to burden us. Um, there'll come times where you know, we have to move, but there should be something in us that doesn't want to. Something that tugs us against the idea of changing churches if we can at all avoid it. Um, third, commitment to church isn't negotiable, is it? Uh, according to Jesus, this is the means by which we represent him. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In other words, you can't be a Christian on your own. Because on your own, you haven't got anyone to love. So commitment to church is not negotiable. There's no such thing as a solo Christian. Because if you're not taking commitment to church seriously, you're not taking Jesus seriously. Because this is what he expects from us. To form a community in which we love one another. And then finally, realize that evangelism flourishes where this love flourishes. It is by this that people will know that you're my disciples. We, we, we kind of think that as long as we speak the truth, that's okay, that's enough. But knowing the truth is never enough. Yeah, the devil knows the truth about Jesus. Now, knowledge itself isn't enough, is it? It has to be knowledge that brings about a transformation. And the transformation that Jesus expects is in the character of our relationships. Uh, and where a community forms, uh, where love that is so rich that it's like this love that Jesus expresses on the cross, well, people notice that. People see that. People come into a community like that and they think, oh, there's something here. There's something here that I would love to have more of myself and be a part of. The challenging words from Christ um, and the heart of the challenge is to realize how badly we need the love by which he has loved us. Um, Ben's going to come up to the front because uh, we're going to sing uh, a great song uh, to conclude. Uh, here is love vast as the ocean. That's exactly uh, the character of the love uh, beyond our ability to comprehend. Uh, let, me, um, let me lead us in a prayer um, and then we'll move straight into that final song. Here indeed in the cross, uh, Lord Jesus, uh, is a demonstration of your love that surpasses uh, our ability to comprehend um, uh, Paul uh, tells us in Ephesians that it is uh, a love so high, so wide, so long, so deep uh, 
that it is beyond our ability to encompass it. Uh, but we want to, to stretch our understanding, uh, to see and understand more of all that you have done in loving us this way, uh, so that we are, uh, that our hearts are drawn um, to love uh, you uh, and to desire to obey you, to obey this commandment, uh, to love uh, one another uh, as you have loved us. Uh, Father, would you, you help us to see, uh, maybe this very evening, uh, this coming week, uh, help us to see uh, ways in which um, uh, we can reflect uh, your great love for us uh, in relationship with others around us, uh, with that sacrificial, uh, self-giving uh, love of Christ. And uh, we ask it in his name. Amen.